you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. And here we are on the Guns and Mental Health podcast, brought to you by Walk the Talk America. <laughs> Makes for good radio, doesn't it? <laughs> that, that's a high quality intro, if I've ever heard one. That sounds a lot like uh, Kai Rizdal's Arctic Report on NPR. It sounds a lot like that intro. So you may get some letters at some point. I think this is our big break, Michael. I really do. Me, me, COVID coughing into the microphone. We always have these awkward intros and outros. Like we don't. It's not our show if, if it's not clunky a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so joining us today, I, <laughs> if you're just joining us for the first time, my name's Jake Wiskirchen. I'm the one who's uh, coughing into my spit shield here, and uh, Michael Sodini is the uh, co-host. Uh, on this show. He's down in Las Vegas. I'm in Reno, Nevada. Jose Fierro is a Walk the Talk board member. He's our guest this time around. And uh, if you are new to the show, we do make it as awkward as possible every single time. But then we have a good conversation. It usually gets fairly deep and uh, we get on some touchy subjects and uh, everybody sings Kumbaya at the end. And hopefully we all learn something along the way. But anyway, Jose, introduce yourself, please, to the listening audience. And uh, if you do know anybody in major media you know, NPR, that kind of thing. Let them know that we suck and never to have us on. Well, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. I've, I've been in line. I feel like, uh, for a long time, uh, almost gotten the show maybe four or five times before. So it feels very special that I was able to crowbar my way in. Uh, it's hard to make the cut. It, no, I, I, I get it. You know, <laughs> for the people listening, you know, I've known, Mike Sudini for a long time and was around when the, the concept of walk the talk America was germinated. And as a veteran, uh, it really spoke to me that, that a disproportionate number of suicides are veterans. So immediately Mike had my attention and I loved his approach. So by way of introduction, I've known Mike for a long time. I am a veteran, uh, retired Marine, uh, worked uh, in, in aviation and uh, now also uh, working back in the federal government, but very passionate about what you guys do and what you've embarked upon and excited to, to hopefully be a part of it uh, in the future as well. Well, we're excited to have you on too. We had uh, Elon Musk on earlier, um, but we made room for you. So we just want to make sure, you know, that you, you come correct. And, uh, it's like growing up, you know, I need you to be there. So I'm glad you're here. Thanks. So I, I, I was listening, uh, to, to Mike talk about some of the feedback for the course that you guys recently had. And, and, uh, one of the feedback items was that 
I guess they assumed that you guys were in the same location. And did you guys use the same background you're using now for those courses? Yes. Uh, yeah, and did you did. get a discount bulk deal on your backgrounds? <laughs> no, there's a good story about this, actually. I'm very proud to tell it. Um, I totally ripped off Mike's because back in the, um, you know, the real peak of the lockdown season, we, uh, we, do, we found ourselves doing these Zoom calls like all the time. And I was doing it in my basement and I always tried to adjust the books and so forth. And I have an old Apple II GS computer that I you know, purposely staged behind me to you know capture the essence of what a dork I am. That I still have my mother's classroom Apple II GS from like 1988 in my basement. And, um, and I saw his fancy thing with the LED lights and the, and all the colors and all that. And I was like, that's really cool, man. And he told me it's a, you know, basically just a, they call it oriental furniture. It's a room divider essentially with some, some lights. And I was like, cool. So I looked one up and, um, looked up several and they all were like very expensive. And I was like, I don't want to pay that. I probably could put something like that together myself with my not talent for woodworking, but I did anyway. And I went down to home Depot and bought some two by twos, spray painted them black and uh, hinged them together the best I could with some some screws and some hinges. And then I uh, tacked up some parchment paper with a staple gun behind it and bought some cheap little LED flashy thingies uh, on Amazon. And all told, I think I spent 60 bucks for the room divider and 40 for the lights, essentially acquiring it for, I don't know, about a third the cost that Mike did. And uh, I was very proud of myself, and I will never undertake such a project again. Um, but now we totally look like twinsies. It's exactly the same. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for noticing. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned that because now I realize you're right. You're in different cities. We got we got reprimanded because we weren't social distancing. Well, congrats wearing masks. to both of you, you know, Rob uh, as well. It, it, you know, to see where you guys have come from and to see people really get a lot out of that course and to know that it's only the first few iterations of that course and it's only going to get better over time. It's, it's actually quite a compliment to you guys. Uh, I think people worry a lot and, and Mike and I have talked about this at length. People worry a lot. You know, we're, we're a data driven society. We, we always want proof points. And I think it, it gets where people want those proof points so bad it paralyzes their ability to make a decision or just do something. And I think that you guys have an approach that you do where, okay, we may not have, we may not be able to demonstrate that uh, we're able to reduce, let's say, suicides in this one segment by 15%, right? Um, one, it'd be hard for anybody to achieve a gold standard randomized assessment to really know that to be the case. But the fact is, uh, does it matter? Right. If lives are being saved, does it matter how it's how it's being done uh, or, or if it's being done with all the proof points required? So that's really what I'm excited about what you guys are doing. That course, I think, will make a difference, is making a difference for the people that take it and their ability to speak to people that are under duress uh, mentally and need that assistance. So. Congrats. I, I appreciate you saying that because uh, from from my from a practitioner standpoint, we are we're we're inundated by science. Even though what we do is more or less an art. I mean, my degree is in the in the arts. Some are in the sciences, and I get that. But um, but we are bombarded by this, you know, evidence based practice and um, uh, what is what is the, the the best practice of the the time or whatever. And I give credit to Mike for 
helping inspire in me a little more of the, the kick in the door, do the right thing no matter what philosophy, because as much as I like to consider myself a firebrand in some spaces, when it comes to big projects like this, I think there is a hesitation on, on most people's, um, you know, uh, desire because they don't want to do it and have it quote unquote not work or have, you know, like the observable, uh, I'll put that in quotes too, the observable metric outcomes be achieved. And then, and then what do you suffer? Criticism, especially if you're spending grant money, for example. Well, part of that's alleviated because we're just doing this of our free, our own free will and accord. And it's just our time, you know, which is substantial. Um, but Mike's story about how he sent off the letter to mental health America, ask him to support the thing without even having an organization on paper, I think is, is one testament to, you know, like, no, I don't have to wait for permission from somebody else. I'm just going to go do it because it's the right thing. So I'll, I'll give him thanks for continuing to motivate me in that regard. And, and I appreciate it. And one other thing for the listening audience, if, you know, if you're in that position where you're like, geez, I want to do this thing, but I don't know if it's going to go over or, or I'm doing this thing and I don't know where it's going to lead. The whole reason we're talking about a course right now is because of work that I did with my licensing board, which was at the time it seemed insane. Uh, it was like, you're going to go take on this like systemic thing that's been around for a long time and everybody hates it and you're going to get a bunch of grief for it. And I did. Um, but it was because of that that I even had the idea of doing continuing education for clinicians. And now we've got this thing. And I was like, holy cow, who, who would have known that three or four years ago that would lead to what we're doing now? And so, you know, I'm, we're not doing it for the metrics or the outcomes and certainly not for the, for the paycheck. But it's I, I really I appreciate that more than you, you probably realize, Jose. Thank you for, for saying that. And I'll let Mike talk because he's, he's got a lot to say about that too. Uh, no, you know, I always say the, the – if I could rename the organization, um, I would rename it walk three feet over there. Right. Cause that's, and that's what we're doing. Um, and I have to remind myself sometimes that, um, because I'm like, is it, why does this seem so simple to me or no one's going to get behind this. And then I realized that there's just this whole group of people out there that, um, this is fascinating to them. Uh, sometimes when you're in the firearms industry and in the culture for so long, you, you think that everyone understands it. And it's like when Jake, when I first went on your show, you know, just even understanding that a lot of people don't understand 2A, right? right. And you, you, you made me define it like, hey, let's let's not use acronyms as much as we, you know, because the listening audience you don't know is there. And this whole thing is is kind of, it is that, right? We didn't know people would show up. We didn't know that it was going to be a hit and it just seems to be getting or gaining momentum. Um, and that's, I'm particularly proud of that just because, um, you know, when I first started this, as much as I had people like you and Jose um, and Rob and Collins and everybody, uh, you know, saying, yeah, that's a great idea. There was, a, there was a lot of skepticism from some people or and a lot of like, be careful or, you know, don't do this or you don't want to do that. And um, I'm just glad it's worked out. Um, but, but I want to also thank Jose. Um, obviously I want, I want you to, to tell the audience who you are, but, um, you know, Jose has been instrumental with helping with the language and the writing, especially when it comes to veterans. Um, you know, so, it, it, you know, when people say like, oh, you put your buddy on your board and the guy you grew up with on your board, well, he was on the board. He, he, re, you know, he just recently joined the board. He's been there for me forever kind of working behind the scenes on this stuff and bouncing ideas off each other. So I appreciate that, man. You know, this is going to be one of the few compliments you get. So soak it up. Um, 
<laughs> we talk every day. <laughs> so, um, but, but, you know, for the listening audience, uh, you know, obviously when you met me, let's go past that. Uh, you know, who are you? Uh, I'm not a self promoter, so not to make this complicated for you guys. Uh, it, it always difficult for me to, uh, talk about, uh, some of the things I've done, but, uh, since you're putting me in that spot, uh, went to, uh, Stanford, studied electrical engineering, got my bachelor's and master's, and then did what everybody with a master's in double E does at Stanford. And I became a Marine. And I did that for uh, for many years, to the dismay of all my uh, all my professors, and uh, I had I had briefly worked in power supplies, which is also probably one of the most uh, boring things you could do as a double A uh, in Hong Kong and in the Philippines. And it, and it was in that process, as well as realizing that you know I wanted the challenge, and I think a lot of folks, you know. You, you serve in the military it's because you want to serve. Uh, but I think a lot of folks are looking for that challenge. And, and for me, it was the, the challenge of being a Marine and the challenge of being able to fly. So I made that transition, uh, was lucky enough to be able to fly. Uh, so I flew F-18s for the Marines. Uh, unfortunately, spent most of my time on the carrier. That was never the, the idea. You, you think if you become a Marine, you're not going to have to be on the carrier all the time. <laughs> But all of my uh, combat deployments were carrier-based. And then when I had the opportunity to retire, uh, I was just starting a family, uh, started late in life, so was very eager to do that. Uh, took, took that opportunity to retire, then went to get my uh, MBA at Berkeley. And it was through that that I had the opportunity to participate with the California Department of Veteran Affairs. I think everybody in the country understands that we have a Veterans Administration. I think what most people don't recognize, though, is that every state has their own VA. And they, they, they're complementary, but they also do some of the same things. And I, and I think for every state's Veterans Administration, what they struggle with is distinguishing themselves, especially to the vet that may not be clear on exactly what benefits are available to them. So I worked with California Department of Veteran Affairs on a consulting project to better educate the veterans in California on what the services were available, how they were different from the VA. You know, CalVet does a lot of things with mental health as well, uh, just like the VA. Like I said, some things are distinct, some complementary, some things uh, are exactly the same. After that project, I ended up working in uh, aviation on uh, sort of the on-demand mobility, what one might call flying car kind of stuff, uh, to include unreasonably large-sized drones and uh, unmanned vehicles along with manned vehicles. And it was sort of through that that I ended up being pulled into the FAA, which is where I'm at now. Uh, and my long-term goal within the FAA is to sort of really focus on that space. But we'll see how that plays out. As far as the, the Walk the Talk America's mission and how I, I sort of feel how I fit into this organization, 
the the work that Walk the Talk America is focused on, and the way I like to describe it, and you guys feel free to to alter this view, is that it, it wasn't really clear what Walk the Talk America was two years ago. Uh, it, in its inception, there was this concept that Mike had that he knew these things were happening. He knew that the uh, being involved in the farms industry, he wanted to see, and instead of those people just talking about it, you know, those people do something. And he wasn't sure what form it would take. Over time, when when one goes through the numbers uh, for firearm-related fatalities, the majority are suicide. Okay, that's something one can focus on. Not that the other you know, fatalities aren't important, but you know, if you want to have a, a focus, uh, I think that has been a fantastic one. And then when one recognizes that a disproportionate number of those are veterans, uh, that's where you know, immediately he had me hooked. Uh, how do we improve this? How do we, you know, and the veterans are, what I, what I like about what Mike does and what you do, Jake, is that uh, I like to talk about this is a community that veterans trust. And so it, it's a, you know, you know, not all uh, veterans are going to be active in the firearms community, but, you know, disproportionate number of them are going to own firearms. I do. And it's a community that speaks their language. It's a community that they trust. And I feel that if you can reach them in a non-confrontational way in a community they trust to tell them, the, the main message I have for all veterans is that it's okay to ask for help. And I think as a community, and I can't speak for all vets, but as a community, we do a pretty poor job of letting people know we need help. We do, uh, you know, we, 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 internalize some things and put up our own barriers because uh, just, you know, majority of veterans don't want to be perceived as any different. Or, and so you, you kind of, if you have issues, you tend to bottle them up. And again, that's, that's a huge generalization. I'm not uh, trying to paint everybody with that brush, but I would say as a community, we don't ask for help. And I think the most important thing to get across the veteran community is that 100% it's okay to ask for help and there's resources that are available to you. Yeah, what, a couple things you said there. Uh, one of them that really stood out to me is is your work in California, um, letting other veterans know what kind of resources there are out there. And I think that that's a huge gap. I think we're missing that. Um, and I've I've learned that working with the Governor's Challenge and the Mayor's Challenge um, in in Nevada, Jake and I are both on those teams. And it's amazing how many resources are out there, and you hear about them, and you go damn, like if I never heard about it, how's the common man figure it out? So I think our work is super important. I think that's some, we need to figure out a way to get a more cohesive group um, of these resources together and make it easier for people to find them. Um, You know, we work with Kim, uh, Kim Donahue out of of, uh, Nevada and, and Jake, Jake and I talk to this woman a lot and she's a wealth of knowledge for Nevada on what resources are out there. Um, and it's just amazing that um, they're there, but you just, it's just tough to find them or there's just so many different organizations. Um, so when you had that, when you were doing that, um, 
I mean, is there anything that stood out about that, that job or that challenge? Um, I mean, how do you deal with that? You, you're going around, you're trying to make people aware. What kind of reception do you get? Uh, do people trust the VA? No, that's a great question. Uh, and I can't answer for everybody, but I feel that, you know, we're, we're talking about a massive organization uh, with one of the most important callings we can have for an organization, right? Support veterans after they've come home and uh, inevitably not everything is going to work right sometimes. And, and there's going to be people that uh, are going to focus on those instances and disregard all the good things that those organizations can do. So I think part of that, the messaging piece is, is maybe why, you know, especially when it comes to medical care. Yeah. With, with, with the VA, there has been problems uh, in, in accessing timely healthcare. Uh, I would say it's getting better every day. Likewise with, you know, specifically that project that I was working on, it, everyone knows outreach is important. Uh, one of the main things that we advised CalVet to do. Uh, so CalVet brought us in to do this consulting project to help them better reach their customer, which is the California veteran. And some simple things. If you think it's important, right, then you should have one person that's in charge of it that's at a high level. And I think that was just the first step. All right, let's get one person in charge of this outreach, this, in a sense, marketing to their customer, which is the veteran. Let's get one person in charge of it rather than have dis- disparate agencies participating. One person owns it and can communicate to the top echelons of the organization. And then it was about what tools that they have at their disposal and are the tools that they have adequate for today's vet. And we all know that now you, you, you need to be mobile. Uh, you should have an app. You should be able to uh, get information so that you can tailor the message to that individual. So a lot of those things that we proposed uh, are not too different than any, any organization really that's trying to get, you know, whether you're selling a widget, right. Or you are doing something that's way more important in this case, and you're trying to reach vets to give them the services that they need. They need to know about it. You need to be able to communicate with them effectively. And uh, when they use that service, better make a difference. And, and so those are sort of all the ways that we are approaching that project. How much collaboration did you guys have with other states? So on our project, we looked at uh, what some other states agencies were doing uh, and their programs. There, there were some good examples to look at. Uh, we looked at states that were compare you know, comparative in size. So, you know, we looked at Florida, we looked at Texas. We didn't look at all states, um, but we looked at some of the big ones. We talked to some of the folks uh, in those organizations to look at best practices. You know, you want to, you want to benchmark, you want to see what other folks are doing, you want to see what works and what doesn't work. Uh, but not every state is exactly the same. Uh, you know, the VA is federal, but every state, theirs is different. And so it wasn't always Apple's to apples, uh, the resourcing wasn't always exactly the same. The uh, 
the structure of uh, where people are located. Um, you know, in California, we have, in a sense, every. County, other people that are involved in. Um, so, so we did look at other organizations, but we felt that, you know, as part of that benchmarking, California also needed to be more proactive and go above and beyond. And, and all all states could be better. We could all be better at getting our message across and getting our message out. That's the reason I asked that is because when Mike mentioned Kim being a, a wealth of knowledge and knowing all these people and the resources, um, I think part of my frustration in watching this, and it afflicts a lot of different communities, my profession for sure, is that you don't have that marketing person, that, that one one point of contact to uh, coordinate and, um, and congeal everything so it all goes out in the same you know uh, pathway or, or avenue. Uh, and I think there's a lot of, I hate the word siloing because it's, it's overused, but it's totally a, applicable is that they all kind of stand alone. They do their thing and they're so focused on what they're doing, which is a good thing. You want to do the thing well, um, that they forget to tell everybody about it and they forget to, or maybe they just, they're resource deficient and they can't, they can't budget to, you know, a person to go coordinate, um, as opposed to the inverse, which is like, you see a lot of companies go out and do the big giant marketing blitz with the product secondary. So, you know, lots of advertising, get, get them interested. And I think it's the inverse with the human service field where you go, all right, let's do what we do really, really well. And people will just like find us and that doesn't happen. And then you end up with this, this fragmented approach. And it sounds like you guys may have at least figured that part out where it's like, we've got all this, all this stuff. Uh, now let's go tell everybody about it. And then the, the uh, the meta message is it's okay to go ask too right it's not it's you're not selling widgets you're not selling the fanciest new fill in the blank on Instagram ads uh, because that's market competitive where you're trying to get out in front of the other thing that's not as good here we don't have anything <laughs> for like mental health treatment or uh, connecting people to jobs or uh, you know occupational uh, strategies and and rehabilitation that kind of thing so. It's so comprehensive that it's really tough to pin down how does the how does the marketing look right and uh, and then of course you got every different organization doing different things. How do you uniquely brand them and get them all working together, talking together, rowing rowing together in the same boat? Um, and and maybe there's something Nevada can learn from California in that regard too. Uh, just sound, it sounds overwhelming probably because everybody's fighting for for dollars to make it happen, but. It's every state has the same issue. I, I, I'd say, a dis, you know, I'm not, I don't know about the majority, but maybe 50-50 vets don't really know the difference between the VA and what their state sure. provides. Uh, and, and and they've earned these benefits or they've earned access to these resources. And if they're in need, they, they should take advantage of them. Uh, the, the delivery piece is critical, and I get it. The majority of people are going to be focused on delivery of whatever it is. Uh, but you're right. You need that cheerleader. You need that one person that's going to do that promotion for everyone. And I think, you know, and there's generally not that person. And so not every organization is going to have that. Uh, it's, it's a challenge. You know, almost every state veterans administration or affairs has been around since the Civil War. 
really. They, when Civil War vets came back, most of these states set up veteran homes. That's not the VA. That's each individual state. So the veteran homes, that's, that's a state thing, not a federal thing. And so almost all these states have been at it since the Civil War. And yet most people don't really know exactly what they do. And they do a lot more than just veteran homes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's baffling, I guess, in some regard to me that it's been around that long and it still hasn't been figured out. Um, but also kind of understandable because if you're just doing it ad hoc and you, you're doing it cause it's the right thing to do. Um, <laughs> man, like how do you, how do you allocate funding and, you know, get commitments and that kind of thing. So I, I get it. I get it. Continual battle, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I want to bring up, Jose, um, and I'm going to take it back to more of a personal level between us. Um, you know, obviously, we, we went to high school together. Um, at one point, we lived together in high school. Um, then through college, you know, I went to the Arizona State University, and you went to Stanford. Um, <laughs> but then after, you know, I was one of those guys that was really shocked that you you went into the Marines to, to fly. And one of the things I always appreciated about you is like, you're the type of guy that's like, Hey, I want to do this. Like, you know, and people are like, I want to be an astronaut. Like usually that, that never works out the way that they planned it to. Um, and you actually did that. Your, your passion to fly got you into the, you know, into the Marines and you did it. And I was there for you um, before combat, before you went off. Um, you know, it, it was always interesting for me as, kind of your friend who is the complete opposite of you uh, to, to watch you go that path. Um, Cause we all know I wouldn't have worked out in the military, um, but uh, you know, you, you, you kind of go through this process and I, I remember even little things like when you were going to the selection process for what you were going to fly. Right. And then you're like, well, I hope I don't get helos. And I'm like, oh, why? And you're like, they're the most dangerous. And that was the first time in my life that I had to like contemplate you dying, right? Like it's just that common alone. Like, go, oh, I don't, I hope he doesn't get helicopters. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, because me not knowing what we're talking about, you know, that just sounds super dangerous. Um, and then I remember like you taking me into some Sims when I was visiting you in Texas and you're know, seeing this, you're, you're like, see that little dot there in the water? That's where you're going to land, buddy. You know, we're in this big simulator. And I'm like, you're right. supposed to land on <laughs> Like, my friend's going to die. There's like, this is impossible. Um, but then you went away. And the weirdest part, it's, it's not like it was today. It's not like I could just contact you every day like we did our whole lives together. Um, you know, we're staying in each other's house and going to school together. Um, you would go away for large amounts of time. And we didn't communicate and you were doing your job, which involved combat. I, I guess you call it air combat, right? But um, talk a little bit about that experience because you've always been very stoic. I've always thought, uh, you know, when I try to pick your brain, you kind of tell the stories. You don't shy away from them, um, but you experienced some tragedy. Um, I kind of want to just dive into the mind state because I don't think a lot of people talk. I mean, I know for Jake and I, we have a lot of uh, – people that, that served and they're combat vets, but I don't think we've ever had a pilot, <laughs> you know, from a pilot standpoint. So can you talk a little bit about that? I know it's a vague question, but. Yeah, I think first I gotta, I gotta set some things straight. Uh, 
first, uh, Mike's college experience is 100% different than my college experience. I went to visit him one time during spring break, and and I just – it was like stepping into a different dimension. <laughs> uh, very, very – you know, it was, it was Phoenix or, or Tempe, I should say, spring break. Uh, I won't get into the details. So then uh, I, I – I doubt I ever said that I don't want helicopters because they're more dangerous, but I'm sure I said, I don't want helicopters. <laughs> right. Well, no, I think it was a guy asking why, and you just said they're dangerous. No, I, you know, I think it, uh, there was a part of me that wanted, definitely wanted to fly helicopters. I had an opportunity to go to, uh, the infantry officers course as well. And when I came out of the infantry officers course, uh, so I was one of two aviators that had the opportunity to do that in my class. I came out of that and I wanted to fly Cobras. I mean, that was it. I wanted to fly Cobras. Uh, you know, we were doing some exercises and, and the Cobra lands, the guys come over and they sit down with you and they go, okay, what, what's your, what's your, what's your plan? And it just was one of the coolest experiences for me do, doing that and, and seeing that. So I was like, all right, I want to fly Cobras. And then I think it was at, you know, a bar one night at the officer's club or something I run into probably the first F-18 pilot I had met up until that point. And, you know, after a couple beers, he had me convinced I needed to go jets. And so that, you know, for me, it was, uh, there, there was a period where I wanted nothing more than, than to fly Cobras, especially after going uh, to IOC. But uh, in the end, I realized that, you know, there was, there was this different experience, this different opportunity. I was lucky enough to make that happen. Uh, and then, you know, a couple, there's a couple selection points along on the way throughout that process throughout flight school. One is, you know, do you even get out of it <laughs> so that you can fly? Do you get your wings? Uh, but then the other pieces are, you know, what airframe you're going to fly. And then even within jets, you know, it wasn't guaranteed that I was going to fly F-18s. So there's, there's a whole process there. But once I decided that I wanted to fly jets at that time, you know, that they didn't Marine Corps didn't have the joint strike fight or anything. So I, I knew I wanted to fly F-18s and I was lucky enough to get that. Now I didn't plan on being on a boat, but uh, it's just kind of worked out that because of my, at the time when I joined my first combat squadron, they had, uh, they needed a replacement pilot. Uh, they were one short. I, I had recently come back from the boat, you know, and my grades were good enough on the boat that uh, without going through the full workup, they took me and I almost immediately went on deployment. So I, and then once you get in Marine Corps, you only have a few squadrons that are carrier based. So once you get on the carrier, you kind of get stuck. Uh, you know, my, my doing close air support is kind of the bread and butter of what Marines do. Uh, I know, you know, some air force guys are always going to talk about, shooting down another aircraft, but that was never the thing that excited me. I think as a Marine, you just want to support the Marine on the ground. Everything's built around the Marine on the ground. And, and we're, we're there to support him just like that Cobra guy did when, when he landed and spoke to me. So really our, our focus has always been close air support and, you know, you know, talking with the guys and dropping, delivering bombs, uh, very different experience for me obviously, uh, than all the folks that were on the ground. Uh, you know, the, the times I landed in country were very few, and 
and honestly, they wanted me back on the boat. They want, if you're on the boat, they want you to land on the boat. And if you land anywhere else, that's probably a bad thing. So I, you know, I had a very different combat experience than, than a lot of other folks, uh, for, for better, or for worse. But I acknowledge that, uh, you know, for, for some of the folks that were on the ground, I mean, uh, I don't mind that they give me a little, a little hard ribbon that I probably had a hot chow every night <laughs> and, I, and, and, a, and a, a nice pillow. So uh, no complaints there. Yeah. I, I remember just, you know, and I want to bring this up. I know it was, it was always a tough uh, subject, but you lost a couple very close people to you uh, that did what you you did, right? They did the same thing that you did. And how, how was that mentally? That's got to be the toughest thing. Because at some point you have to think about your own mortality and you're flying around in a jet. And, it, you know, there's just as good a chance that you could have a bad day and that could come than somebody shooting you out of the sky, right? Well, you know, in the, in the poster, they don't, they don't tell you that, uh, <laughs> you know, there's people that are going to die in training. Right. Um, and, and I, I lost a couple buddies in training and then, uh, through, throughout flight school. And then, you know, on our, on our second deployment, and, and I think you and I were talking about this prior, our second, my second combat deployment, uh, I lost my roommate and, uh, and I think the, the, the toughest thing about that and you know, you know, some of the story is that this was at the very beginning of OIF operation, Iraqi freedom operation enduring freedom. And uh, this is sort of at the very beginning, right? So we're talking, uh, you know, we first started going into Iraq for the second time, I guess. And the processes that we had for when somebody passed ultimately became much better uh, as, as military, but in the very beginning, we were still kind of doing it in the peacetime way. And what I mean by that is that now if somebody dies, they're going to have a casualty assistance calls officer and everybody's going to know exactly what they're doing. And they've done it before. And, uh, they're, they're going to be the best resource for any grieving family to navigate this, uh, when my roommate passed, I ended up being the casualty assistance calls officer, which I don't have any formal training. I mean, I, I tried to get spooled up, but, uh, but I'm also emotionally compromised because, you know, I, I, I needed to go through a grieving process. And uh, the next thing I know, I'm on a flight back. And it, it was just, uh, you know, and then I find myself in New York City trying to provide the best assistance that I can uh, to the family, uh, to his, his, his spouse who I knew well. And it was just one of the most emotionally draining experiences I had ever had. And, and I think after that, I sort of did have a, a different approach to flying and, and, and to all that. But it was it was uh, emotionally one of the most challenging experiences I've been. Uh, second to being your friend, probably the most emotionally challenging experience I've gone through. 
He he is draining, <laughs> isn't he? <laughs> yep, I'm like a tick. I'm just there. <laughs> no, seriously though, Jake, think about that. That's crazy, right? It is, and it's not something we would ever want to put people in the position of having to do, and it seems a little I think it seems slightly unfathomable these days, if I could use that term, um, with all the quote unquote resources we just got done talking about. But really it, it brings to mind as cliche as it may sound, like Top Gun. Like, you know, Maverick has to go and like console Goose's wife and you know, they meet together or whatever. And it's a very brief moment in the movie because that's not what the movie's about. Um, but I, you know, I, so I, I teach the, the, the crisis intervention training week, the CIT week at the local police academies here. I've been doing it for about three years. And my job is the mental health intro. What is mental health? I teach some de-escalation, some emotional functioning. And then uh, we do scenarios and evaluations at the end. And this is all framed in the context of encountering people who are struggling with mental illness in, in the line of duty, right? Cops respond to a call and somebody's you know unstable and they need to navigate their way through it. And I talk a lot about validation and understanding emotional process. Um, but that's a curriculum that I, I nobody teaches really, and, and I say that you know a little bit tongue in cheek. But but really, we don't get emotional functioning in in any curricula anywhere, uh, elementary, middle, high school, uh, college, post grad, and even in my own profession, it's just not uh, something that we learn. We learn a lot of theories and intervention strategies and concepts, and you know the the, the big up up above bird's eye view of how people go through their recovery of whatever they're recovering from but we don't get into the neurological functioning of it too much and really that's the roots of a lot of trauma on, on we had a, a doc doc springer shauna springer who does a lot of great work with vets in the in the bay area and she's written a couple of books and she's she's helping me and some others to convince i not to convince but to change our minds around the idea of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, not have it be a, a mental disorder so much as it is a, a neurological injury. So it's like it's it's a physiological impact upon the, the brain that can also be re- rehabilitated. Um, but we didn't we didn't have a lot of that knowledge back then. We still struggle to get the information out to let people know that you can go through these experiences, whether they be high stress or trauma inducing or just standard. I hate to say run of the mill, but you know, to the human experience, it's run of the mill because it's been with us for several, several thousand years, millions of years, as long as people have been alive and die. Um, how do we go through the run of the mill grieving process alone, then try to shepherd other people through it? And I think it's totally inappropriate to ask somebody who is grieving to go help somebody else in their own grief, unless it's done appropriately where you can validate both experiences and they can pull together simultaneously. And that's really what we would call group counseling, you know, at its core where you get a bunch of people with similar common types of experience in the same room and they all go, yeah, yeah, I can identify, I can identify and we heal together. Um, but I, that is, that is pretty bizarre to me, um, that you'd have to go through that. So my question now is how, if you can even point to how, other than just saying, well, time and space and distance and all that, how did you manage to get through that? How did you move through it to become fit for duty, so to speak? Um, you know, or, or did you, did you just shove it down and move forward and it's still, you still got residue? I don't know. Well, you know, I don't think I did it very well. That's uh, fair. That's totally fair. In, in the moment when I was there, uh, I was being, you know, I represent, the organization that 
to this person killed their husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, there's anger, there's hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also represent the closest person <laughs> to her husband. Um, and so it was just uh, like ping pong emotionally going back and forth, not knowing what role I, I was going to be treated that day uh, when I was trying to navigate through all the, the paperwork and the process and everything else. Uh, so I, I probably did a lot of things that are inappropriate, shouldn't do, uh, you know, communicated uh, things that I probably shouldn't have communicated. Uh, you know, it should have just been about the paperwork, but it's so difficult because I was emotionally involved. Um, you know, when, when, when the wife says, how did this happen? You know, the, the probably correct answer is, well, we have to wait till the full investigation comes out, which is a really completely unacceptable answer to that person in that moment. And so what, what I meant by probably said some things I shouldn't is because that probably should have been my answer, but I was unable to provide that answer. And, and so I tried to be as transparent and as honest as I could. And it just puts me in a bad situation too. So I, I think there's, the, there is no short answer. The, the long, as continuing long answer here is I didn't process it very well at the time. I really wasn't able to fully process it until much later. Uh, I, I, I struggled for a couple years um, in, in my approach to, or in with the spouse too, because it just it emotionally I, I, I was drained and that was just a relationship that was very difficult for me to maintain uh, in a in a healthy way and you know I felt like I had let down the Marine Corps by not being the best caco I could be I felt like I let down the spouse uh, and then you know when I returned to the squadron uh, you know I returned right back to it. I mean, I got right back in, into it. And, and so, you know, in a sense, like everybody else, buried myself in my work. Uh, and it really wasn't until post-deployment that, uh, with time and space that you talked about, that I, I was able to really get back to where I needed to be. But it was, it was a long process. And, you know, oddly, there was some, I feel somewhat, like when I lost my father, it was very, it was, it was somewhat similar. Um, I lost my father and I had, uh, so, you know, I had, I had some leave to, to go back and handle the affairs and everything, but that was also something that I felt like I did not process well in the moment. Um, and, you know, one would think you'd get better over time, but it was just, you know, it was, it was sort of not one right after another, but they happened to fairly closely. And I just didn't, you know, I, I didn't process my father passing very well either. So it, it was a couple of years where it was, it was a challenge to, to get focused. At any point, and I asked this be out of real strong sensitivity because it keeps coming up for many, many professions, I mentioned fitness for duty. At any point, did you believe that you were unfit or did you worry about being deemed unfit after something like that? 
I think I was too naive. I should have, right? Because <laughs> how can one not be impacted? And, you know, in aviation, we do discuss human factors. That is a concern. So it's not as if I was oblivious to the fact. But, you know, you know I always talk about compartmentalization. Uh, you know, I feel like being able to compartmentalize is a, is a huge attribute for a fighter pilot, any pilot. And so I think I was so focused around that that I convinced myself that I'm good to go. Uh, I probably wasn't, uh, you know, but no, nobody and nobody, like I said, we're a community that doesn't want to say that we need help either. Uh, you know, I had, I had buddies that were over there. I, I needed to go back and, and contribute. So it, it was, you know, in, in retrospect, I think I was so laser focused that I didn't even, I, I didn't give myself the right opportunity to, to go through that grieving process. So if I'm going to be devil's advocate here to follow up and I saw Mike wanted to jump in, I'll give, let you go in a minute. I, um, devil's advocate, you know, against my own profession, we, we think that everybody should go through counseling and you should, there should be some sort of stamp of approval when you, you know, you're quote unquote better. Um, it, and I guess the proof is that, you didn't need it. Here you are, right? And I'm being glib. Uh, here you are. You made it. Whatever. Laser focused, compartmentalized, got the job done, retired, all that stuff. Nothing ever really bad came of it. Um, so how much how much attention do we need to be paying to this uh, versus, yeah, we need to, we need to call attention to it. Um, and then also, like, where, where does where does the after effects come in for the for the standard veteran who goes through whatever he or she goes through comes out the other side then the debrief never happens because usually after critical incidents we have some sort of debrief whether it be uh business and industry or military law enforcement medicine and but that doesn't happen for thousands of people because it's just like oh congratulations here's your papers now go into the work world and try to move forward (laughs) but it's not at all the same so i'm trying to figure out like it's a very imprecise question. I want to. I want to ask about what. What do we do differently now? What would you have done differently? Do we need to do anything differently? Is it training front loaded or is it debrief on the back end? Like I, I don't know. Help me work through this because we want to be solution focused. You know, it's improved a lot. Uh, so there, there have been changes. Uh, like I said, this, I would never be. In a, I would never be that casualty assistance calls officer in that situation again. Sure, sure. Uh, that was only kind of in the very beginning that it happened like that. Uh, it, it wouldn't happen again. Uh, as far as just the regular stress of, of being in the military or really any vocation, there's stress, but uh, regular stress of being in the military, um, there are resources available. It goes back to what I said at the very beginning of this really the messaging has got to be it's okay to ask for help. And I feel like that's where uh, we've, I, I feel that we're, we're resourced. There usually is for every deploying unit, whether it's a battalion or squadron or whatever, there's usually going to be some counseling available. Uh, but it's just getting that individual, that Marine, that soldier, sailor, airman, to take advantage of it. That's the hardest part. Uh, Marketing, I think, is important. That outreach piece is important. 
But ultimately, uh, unless you have an atmosphere where 100% they feel like it's normal, it's okay, uh, there's going to be people that, that think it's either a sign of weakness or uh, they're letting other people down by doing it or they're letting themselves down by doing it. Um, so really it's, it's continuing to beat that drum. Should, that it is okay. Well, should should we maybe switch away from the volunteer uh, focus mindset and more toward a compulsory thing where it's like, hey, part of your military experience is uh, after you retire or get discharged or otherwise separate, uh, you don't actually get to leave our control until you go through because we put you through however many weeks of basic training, right? We should we should put you through some some semblance of weeks of uh, courses to reintegrate into society and it doesn't just have to be mental health focused uh, emotional stuff it could it has to be like you know vocational uh, building too and that and that that sort of topic um, maybe maybe it needs to just augment where it's like you don't you don't get a choice like you sign on in the beginning you're signing on for the thing at the end that we give you too and if you want to roll your eyes because you're smart enough and well adjusted enough to not need it okay that's fine but you're still going to go through it uh, almost like they they force us to do continuing education units to maintain our licensure um, you know can you mail it in yeah sure uh, but if you want to be exceptional you reach out the best and the brightest people to teach you um, but at least there's some level of governance hovering over the top. It's like you don't you don't get the honorable discharge or the straight discharge without complying with our um, reintegration. They, they do. I, they they do have transition courses that you, you got to take. You got to get them signed off. And mm. uh, it probably was more of the eye rolling kind of courses. Right. Ten years ago, five years ago, uh, the courses are getting better. They get better with good feedback. It, it is a topic that I feel that there is focus on. Uh, you know, I, I don't I, I don't have my ear, uh, you know, tuned to to know exactly where it's at right now. But I knew that when I when I left, it was continuing to get better. Uh, so it may not have been where they wanted it to be when I left, but it, I, I could see the trajectory. It was getting better. Uh, so they do have courses that they you you have to take. It, the focus is not necessarily on mental health. It's on, you know, variety of subjects, right? Mm. Uh, you know, when, whenever I had a Marine that came in that was, you know, saying they were going to get out, uh, it, it was always strange to me that Marine would be uh, hesitant to let you know they were making the decision to leave. And I, and, and I, I, I sort of understand where that's coming from, but whether they, they served for their just original enlistment or they were in for, you know, 20, 30, 40, you served. It doesn't matter. So you should walk out with your head held high. I mean, that you served. You've earned it. Uh, and if you make that decision, all I wanted to hear was, do you have a plan? Hmm. And I think these transition courses, that's a big part of it, right? Helping that Marine understand or just – you know, generic military service member understand, uh, okay, you're going to leave here. Are the, here are the resources, you know, what is your plan? Do you have a plan? Is it school? Is it something else? Uh, you have gained a lot of skills. Is it maybe a trade? Uh, but there, there are a few that don't really have that concrete plan. And, and so those transition courses are trying to help those folks 
formulate that plan so they leave with the best opportunity for success when, once they leave. So those courses exist. Is the focus mental health? No. Uh, and I don't know what port, you know, what percentage uh, is mental health focused. Hmm. Okay. Well, that helps because I, you know, where, where the net conversation naturally goes next is, well, why are the hell are we having so many veteran suicides? <laughs> but maybe that's, maybe that's just it. Maybe that's the next step in this feedback and, you know, ever evolving process with these transition courses. We start focusing a little bit more on that. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not on top. I'm just gathering this information as we go forward. I'm new to this whole thing anyway, so that's that's all good information. Well, it, it, you know, you guys, you guys can say that, right? But look around in the space that you operate, and quickly, you guys realize that you're leaders in this space, and it's, isn't that that's sort weird. of odd? That right? is weird. When, when, yeah. When Mike went to the White House. And participated uh, in, in talking about veteran suicide. The VA was just as excited to hear what Mike had to say yeah. as any other group, right? Uh, we can we can all get better. You know, the outreach is is a challenging topic, but very quickly, I think. you guys, and they may not all work, that make a difference. You know, and the, and the whole idea is to go out there and try to make a difference. I'd rather be that person than the person that just sits on the sideline and never does anything. For sure. Yeah. So you, but, but so you, it is sort of funny. You're like, well, you know, I'm not the guy, but you guys are involved and, and you're speaking to the, the people that, that are at these higher levels that aren't sure exactly where to go and what to do and how to, how to change the narrative. Uh, I, I still find it odd that, you know, Mike's at this table. I'm picturing this huge oval table, Mike, and, uh, you speaking and I still can't, I still can't fathom it, but uh, people, people actually just want to know, uh, what, what walk to talk America has done. You know, uh, Mike sent me a photo the other day and, uh, and Jake, you commented on this. Mike sent me a photo and it was uh, a firearm out of the box with a little walk to talk America. Oh yeah. Edgar, right Edgar sent that, I think. Yeah. And if you take a step back, uh, you know, not every farm manufacturer is doing that. Uh, but for those that do, that's more of a, a reach into the community that's that's buying the firearms than any other organization has out there. Just that one simple thing, right? And, and that little postcard flyer, that's a pretty simple message, right? Uh, nobody has that reach. There's people that are buying a firearm that uh, are learning about the organization. And uh, if just one person out of 100 makes a call, does a uh, survey, uh, screening. the screening, thank you, the mental health screening, uh, that, that's a huge win. That's true. So, yeah. so I'm really proud of the work that you guys have done and, and how quickly, uh, especially, you know, Mike, with your, you know, really, Mike, you're well situated to, to helm this, right? Because uh, I think if anybody else did it, 
there would have been this real reluctance from the firearms industry. But seeing one of their own really push this, and you know, and a person that knows a lot of the folks in the industry, some credibility. I'm not going to give you a ton, maybe just a little. And some some credibility in the industry. I think it's great. And then you guys you get Rob on, and then and and Jake. Without you, uh, this organization would be where it is today because the you were the missing ingredient really when it comes to engaging the mental health community, not necessarily as outsiders, but as peers, right? Because Mike was always going to be an outsider. Uh, and so was Rob. And so being able to have that person that can interface with the community as a peer, uh, incredibly important. And I love what you guys are doing with the, the competency course. I can't wait to see how that evolve evolves, how the, 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 second course and the third course come along real excited uh i'm promoting your guys' competency course but to me there may be people like we, we said at the beginning that are like oh you know but is it making a difference and as long as you don't care if you get the credit or not you can you can achieve great things you maybe have eight different programs does it really matter which one is moving the needle the most? Right. I love the fact that you guys are engaging in so many different levels, so many different avenues to try to make a difference. Yeah. And maybe that is how the culture changes is, you know, uh, I'm not saying we, we don't go reach back to current firearms owners who've been around for a million years and change their minds. We absolutely should. And hopefully we do. But to your point about like the, the gun box flyer, that may be a brand new person who goes, Oh, this thing just comes with my, my gun. Like, you know, when I bought my first gun, it was like, Oh, it just comes with a cable lock. That's cool. Like that wasn't the case, <laughs> you know, 30 years ago. So, um, now it's, you know, maybe looking ahead 30 years, uh, we have changed, you know, well, that's, that, that really kind of warned me a little bit there. Thank you. Appreciate you saying that. Well, plus I think if you're a responsible firearm owner, I read everything in that box. Yeah, like that's true. That's true. Right? Yeah, I want to go do. through everything. Yep. I want to see everything. I want to, you know. Uh, so I think it's great. Yeah, Jake. Uh, you know, we this is we did back to back today. We had uh, um, Randy me on from Liberal Gun Owners on, and I had told a story about um, somebody once said to me, and the somebody was you, Jose, uh, Jake. When I told that story about. He, had, he really put it in perspective for me that, you know, just because you own a firearm doesn't mean that you identify with the 2A firearm gun culture community. And I had never yeah. really thought about it. You know what I mean? But I was like, he's, he's right. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? He's like, um, and, and that helped me kind of, uh, when I look at the big picture of everything too, is to understand what we put in that box, um, you know, we have to be really conscious that it speaks to, it transcends across everything, you know, to, and it speaks to everybody and, and not, and not to think just cause you bought this firearm that you're going to actually be interested in the community and what the community has to say, um, you know, and that's why I kind of created the hashtag socially conscious to a, right. Because I think that can speak to people where they can say like, Hey, I'm getting behind this because it's the right thing to do. You know, I may not like, yeah, I may have different views on restriction. I may have different views on this, but 
um, everybody can get behind saving lives or, or making earth better or, or getting people the help they need when they're in crisis. Um, but that, that was Jose's comment. You know, the, it's just funny that you happen to be on the show today as well for round number two. Well, I would take it a step further, right? Uh, just because you own a farm doesn't mean you are part of the two A community. Just like if you own a farm, you aren't necessarily involved in gun culture. Right. I just I happen to own a farm. I like owning a farm. Uh, doesn't mean that uh, I'm, I'm going to, the, you know, got my slot at the range every Saturday, you know, and continually involved. It, you know, it, it means something different to everyone. Right. It uh, I had uh, one of my Marine buddies. He had, I don't know, over a hundred. And like some of them were like super vintage and just really awesome and cool. And, and like to me, that guy's totally gun culture, right? And and uh, it was fun because you know he's he's excited, it's his passion, and I'm interested, and so it was fun to talk to him. But you know, I'm not that guy. I don't own a hundred firearms. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm and I'm also not the guy that you know, is, is, is trying to modify certain parts to gain an edge on at the range that I'm really, I don't need. So, uh, although, you know, it's always fun to be a better shot. It's still, it's like, I'm not the guy that's going to modify my firearm to kind of get that edge, but I totally get the people that do, you know, it's no different than modifying your car. If you want, that's, in- Rob does a great job of anal- analogizing it to car culture in our, in our competence training. And I, I'm that guy too, you know, lifelong gun owner, family full of cops, all that stuff, went to the police academy at one point or another. And, um, but I just, I, not only did I never get into it, I was actually, I, and I have never said this before, um, but I was embarrassed by it. I didn't want to be associated with what I perceived was the gun nuts. Um, and I've said this before, which is I had to come out of the closet to my own clinical community because I was surrounded by so much condescending language in school and in, and in supervision and in different walks of life and avenues and whatnot that I, I didn't want to be affiliated with those people. Right. And I was like, Oh, but I sort of am. But, and so joining up with WTTA, I was like, well, fish or cut bait. <laughs> it's like, I, I, okay, I guess I'm, I guess I'm coming out of the closet now and everybody's going to know, and we're going to take an affirmative bold step forward and saying, yeah, I can do both. I can live in both spaces. Uh, and as a, as a weird, uh, weird, paradoxical irony i um i now find myself more interested in doing that kind of thing like shooting more regularly and um and and i did just recently i got a i got a ruger 1022 takedown for the boys to use um something easy that they could shoot with no recoil and, and it has it was having this like extraction problem and so i went online and i was like how do i fix this and, and sure enough they sell like kits and it was like 30 bucks it was super cheap and i just watched a youtube video and i took the thing apart put it back together solve my problem. I was like, man, now I'm a gunsmith, <laughs> which I'm totally not. But it, I, I never, ever, ever, ever would have done that a year ago. No chance. And now that I've rubbed elbows with, with all these guys and followed them on Instagram and I'm like, oh, this isn't as big and spooky and scary as I think it, it is. And as it turns out, most firearms owners are not uh, strange. They're, they're just normal people with a hobby who are really good at the hobby. And I guess that's, that's, that can be intimidating of itself. Like, you know, playing sports, you know, you like there's people who are better at softball than other people and it can be intimidating being around them, but eventually they all like, 
give tips and hints and nothing's really proprietary for the most part. It's almost like being in the home homebrewing community is very much like that too. Like we don't get weird about recipes and stuff. We, we help each other get better. And that's been really heartwarming for me to, to be received as well as I have been into the, the culture. And I think, I think I shot a text to everybody. I had a phone number for who had influenced me at some point or another over the last year and a half and said, thank you very much. I've learned so much from you. And of course the response was, I've learned so much from you. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I just, I don't see it that way, but hearing you say that now, it, it makes me feel good about, you know, whatever contributions, you know, I'm making. But for me, I've, I've grown exponentially in my understanding and, and my non-judgmentalism too, which is great. Well, and, and I tell Mike this and, you know, one of my, my big lines for mental health professionals that are dealing with somebody that, if that mental health professional is a person that is very anti-gun, uh, you you know that person, that mental health professional, is bringing a bias mm-hmm. into the the room, and really what they have to tell themselves is whether they think the other side is irrational, and this could go with any topic, right? Sure. Whether they think the other side is irrational or not, it's irrelevant, yep. right? Because they're they're there for a different purpose, and so get you know let, let's say you are anti-gun, uh, and and you think somebody's desire to own a firearm is irrational. Well, get over it. You're not there for that. You're yeah. there to help that person with a different issue, and so you know we all bring biases to everything. But that's one of those things where uh, if if people stopped thinking that other people's thoughts were irrational we might be able to have a more candid discussion about the things that we're there to talk about. And, and uh, I think it's important for the mental health community to, if, if they think it's irrational, just get over it. Cause it's not, it's just absolutely irrelevant to what they're trying to accomplish. Yeah. And it's, and I would even say it's um, it impedes care for sure. Um, but beyond that, uh, I think what's bothering me more and more these, these days is with the, with the division and the partisan politics and the identity politics and the us versus them encampments that we find ourselves in on social media in particular, and sometimes in real life is the need to be right and to show everybody how right you are and then change their mind to, to your side. Um, that that gets in the way of just being present and helping someone heal. Um, it's almost like there's, it's like, well, I've got you in front of me helping you heal. I'm going to give you my opinion on whatever it is. And I I don't know if that was ever the case because I'm fairly new to the profession. I'm only about 10 or, 10 or 12 years in. So I don't know what it was like in the 90s and 80s and 70s um, before the advent of social media and all the, the hyperbolic division. Um, but I got to believe it's it's getting worse. And, and I think that creates more of an imperative for us to push more into the center you know, and, and be non-attached to our beliefs and examine them thoroughly. And even if you have really strong, well-rooted beliefs, be they in politics or religion or whatever it is, um, that you park those at the door because the therapeutic space is not the place for those. The therapeutic sp- p- space is the place for healing. And healing does not come with an exhortation to believe differently. Um, 
unless that belief is obviously impacting your life. Like I believe cigarettes are perfectly healthy and I'm going to smoke 10 packs a day, regardless of what my family tells me, you know, like, okay, we may have to examine that because it's impacting the reason you're in my office. Um, but yeah, the, the, I love the way you stated that it's like, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter the conversation. And I might, I might just steal that and use it in the next class where I say something to the effect of you can have your beliefs, um, but you best better wrestle your biases to the ground, lest they impede your ability to provide care. It's really good. Hey, I got, I, I want to point something out, Jake, you know, Jose's had all these amazing experiences and done so much in life, but I think one of the most amazing things that he's ever pulled off is not having social media. Wow. Really? <laughs> no, no social media. That's like, that's like having a flip phone. He's like a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've been told many times that, like, oh, you're not going to survive. I'm like, no, I'm doing just fine. Doing just fine. It's not that, you know, I'm a dinosaur or, uh, or, or anything like that. It's just that, you know, I don't find you guys are in a different space, uh, especially Mike and, and, and all the promotion that you have to do, right? I totally get that from a business standpoint, but from a personal standpoint, I find almost no value at and and I find more attributes that take away from my happiness than, than the benefits that I might receive. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause you, you, you said you have children. I don't know anything about your family. Um, do you get pressure from friends and relatives to inter- integrate into that space to connect just so they can like quote unquote stay updated or are you basically living like like we were as children, where it's like if you want to you want to talk to somebody, you pick up the phone and call them, or you want to share pictures, you you mail them or you know text them or what? Like how do you, how do you navigate that, and do you feel pressure? Uh, I don't feel any pressure because of my wife. You know, my wife, uh, we're we're nine years apart. She she loves that world. Uh, she you know she she's putting plenty of pictures up now for the folks that want to see our kids. If I do have something neat, then it's a, it's a Jose exclusive. Nobody else has it. You're not going to find it anywhere. And I'll send it to you via text. Uh, I always joke with my mom that it's a, it's, it's exclusive, uh, of my kids. Yeah. I, I pick up a phone. I, uh, I just don't find a lot of, and I'm not trying to take away for anybody, anybody that finds a lot of enjoyment. No, I'm asking I, for I, me really, because because I've wrestled with this a lot, and I and I don't know if I should just kill my Instagram and Twitter accounts because I I don't know that I'm I'm adding value to anybody else's life because I have such a small following that, and my Instagram is private. I haven't had Facebook since 2014, um, and I don't know that I'm receiving a ton of value back. You know, and so so I'm listening very very carefully to what you're saying and considering. Like, how would I navigate this? My wife is also nine years younger than I am. And she does not live on social media, but she's there enough to satisfy the grandparents. So maybe, maybe, I, I don't know. But keep, keep going. I, I apologize for interrupting. No, I, I think uh, for me, it, it, the time and it, same thing as video games. You know, when I was a kid, I would play a lot of video games. Uh, and my wife, you know, we, we haven't had a video game system. I haven't had a video game system since like we, uh, as an adult. And that was mainly for party games. And, um, my wife's like, our kids want a switch and ultimately they're going to get a video game system. 
But I was telling my wife, I'm like, if we get something and they're just a hair too young to really do it, then I'm going to fill that void and you're going to regret me <laughs> being on this thing. <laughs> and so even though I might be interested, and, and, and the truth is now, uh, you know, as we get older, I, I, I can't spend more than just a little bit. Um, but I, I just know that it would be a huge time sink and I probably wouldn't get that much value out of it. Uh, and, and for uh, the Facebook stuff, uh, I don't have a huge desire to have this massive network of, it's sort of like fight club, single serving friends, yeah. right? I, I have a very core group of very tight friends and I'm happy in that space. I don't, you know, I, I had a, I had a, uh, a friend from Korea that reached out to me via text and it was cool. I hadn't talked to him in probably two years. And, you know, then we had a quick conversation on text going back and forth, but we probably wouldn't even have had that if every month he saw something on my Facebook, we never sure. would have had that interaction. Sure. Yeah. It would have been probably a like or a cool or whatever. And we wouldn't have had that interaction where we're, we're you know, really talking about something. So I find more, more utility from that. For what it's worth, I also have a friend who is an aviator in the Marine Corps. Um, and he also doesn't have social media. He's still active duty. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Matt now and I'm like, well, I still talk to Matt and our conversations are way more valuable, even though they're more infrequent. And I'm wondering now if, you know, psychologically, subconsciously or unconsciously, I know that those couple hundred friends that I have, my Instagram is very, very small. Um, I, I just somehow know that they're out there, so I don't need to reach out and ask. And and I wonder how much that would change. Certainly the time suck. <laughs> like mindlessly scrolling. I, I recently slapped a timer on the Instagram um, just to shut it down at the, you know, when I, when I run out of time. It's like 20 minutes a day or something. Um, but that made me cognizant of how much I'm actually spending on there, <laughs> scrolling endlessly about stuff that I don't need to see. Um, There's a huge distinction, though, between personal and business. Yeah. If, and I don't have a business if, one. I mean, we do, but I don't manage it. If you're an organization, it has become the de facto method For of sure. reaching out and communicating with folks, and it's yeah. absolute necessity. Yeah. So uh, to me, they're two very distinct, yeah. distinct things. Hmm. Good food for thought, though. I, I really, I, I think I needed this conversation more than I realized. Well, what'll be funny is tomorrow I'm going to join Facebook. <laughs> well, I won't follow you because I'm not on there. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, made it this long, man. Yeah, no, I think I'm good. Well, we're up against it, but I want to ask you one last question, um, Jose. How do you tend to your mental health? Is this the same question you ask all of your guests? Yes, this is the same question I ask all my guests, and I say that everyone has to, so far, it's just gone up. Like, everyone, every answer gets better. Don't so, let us down. Yeah, don't let us down, brother. Well, no, I mean, I'm actually going to let you down to hook up the next person, right? Uh, but I, I'm sure everybody's different and, and unique, Uh for me, it's having that outlet and, and amazingly enough, Jake, you're not going to get this, but Mike is one of those outlets and it's sort of this core group of friends that I have, uh, almost any one of them, uh, I can talk to 
and, and not superficially, like I could really talk to them and, uh, you can't always put that on your spouse either. And, and I feel like not every person is going to provide the same, uh, the same relief. Uh, and so I've been very lucky in the group of friends that I've had that I've been able to lean on them, discuss things, uh, be honest, be open. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I've probably gained more out of that than my friends have, but somehow they're still friends with me. So I'm very lucky. <laughs> you know what I give that answer on a range from one to five? I give it a five because you included me. <laughs> uh, What's it, funny is, is that if you listen, if you had Mike's headphones, it would be like the peanuts. It'd be wah, 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 Mike, wah, 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 wah. And he's like, good answer. Good answer. <laughs> His, yeah, love well. <laughs> His love is conditional. His love is conditional. Yeah. No, they, uh, no, that's really, I don't, I don't want to gloss over this that you made the distinction there. And for people who are listening to audio only, I gave a thumbs up when you said you can't always have that be your spouse. I think we, we sometimes forsake that a little bit in our culture, um, you know, with all the, the monogamy and, you know, got to, got to stay married and all that stuff, especially if you come from a religio spiritual background. Um, it's like, well, your wife should be your best friend and your be all and your end all. And it's like, that's not healthy. <laughs> so thanks for saying that. That's, that's good. And for me as a mental health professional, it's like, you know, how often do you go to counseling? I'm like, hey, it's been a few years, but it's because I'm surrounded by practitioners who are very, very close friends. And while we're not quote unquote treating each other, we have the same therapeutic tools, you know? So when I'm really up against something, I go to Jesse or whatever. And Jesse's like, so, um, let me ask you this. <laughs> and I know exactly where he's coming from. And I consented to it by asking him. And so we, we can actually be become quite therapeutic with each other. And I appreciate that. It's uh, very well stated. Well, normally we'd say tell <laughs> tell the people where they can find you. But uh, you can find them in the state of California. Working for the <laughs> FAA. What is it you do? What is it you do for the FAA, by the way? We never we didn't cover that. Are you allowed to tell us? No, I'm a aviation safety inspector. I focus on pilots, uh, making sure that the airspace is safe for you guys. Um, I think uh, long term, I'd like to get more involved in the policy piece of how the airspace is going to grow and integrate some of the drones and urban air mobility, on-demand mobility type uh, electric VTOL aircraft. It's not going to happen tomorrow. You're not going to, Jetson's promise is not going to happen tomorrow. But th there's great things that are happening right now. Uh, things that are happening all over the world uh, that are happening right now, saving lives uh, via drone, everything. It, it's it's a really interesting space. And uh, I feel like as the largest national airspace system in the world, that the FAA needs to be a leader in this space and have a seat at the table. So that's something I'm, I'm, I'm brought with me to the organization and I'm passionate about uh, to pursue it. So many questions I want to ask based on that, but I'll ask one. Is it possible? I'm not even given a time frame on it, but is it, is it possible that one day we'll be able to buy um, personal uh, VTOL aircraft like we do cars just to zip across town faster, not use roadways? 
Eventually, yes. Not our uh, lifetime, though. What's, what's the time horizon? Yeah. Thousand our, years? I mean, yeah. inevitably. But yeah. uh, in the near term, uh, there's a lot of things that have to be solved. You know, uh, we I was part of a company that we designed some really unique aircraft, vertical takeoff. Uh, but I, I joke with people that if disc area or the size that you had available to you wasn't an issue, you'd probably end up developing a helicopter. <laughs> it's ideally mm. suited for what it does. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people are going through a lot of effort to design something that just ignores the fact that the helicopter is really great at what it does and it's a great design. Uh, having said that, I've been involved in a lot of other types of designs. Uh, the holy grail that the whole industry is shooting for is based on batteries that don't exist currently. Uh, you know, the energy density, uh, not to geek out too much, uh, you, you see breakthroughs in the lab, but the energy density in commercially viable batteries is really not much better than 200 watt hours per kilogram. But really what that means is you need a lot of weight right. in order to lift something and carry you across town. So the limitation going forward is, basic chemistry and uh, it's going to be we, we know the cost curve of batteries because that's based on production scale right build enough it's going to get cheaper over time mm -hmm. but the energy density like I said you see breakthrough in the lab all the time but the energy density curve is not exponential and so that is going to be the biggest roadblock if people want to make it electric to you being able to buy one and fly it across town. And, and really the, the long-term vision, right, is that you don't buy it. It's Uberized. Mm. You hit a button. It shows up autonomously. So there's no pilot. And ideally it's safe, which we're not there yet, right? But in the future we might be. And you jump into, you know, like a telephone booth. Uber quadcopter. Aircraft, yeah. And then you just, you know, you get out where you want to be that's that's the long-term vision that everybody's sort of shooting for a lot of a lot of smart people are working on it but i think the hype has gotten far beyond where we're at technically that's a good answer though and, and I, again i have so many questions about why cars and not aircraft and all sorts of things but we are totally out of time and it's dinner and all well, sorts you can of send them a pigeon letter yeah <laughs> Morse code. I got a little machine right here. We accept that too. Click, click, yeah, write click, a, click. a letter <laughs> with my quill pen, my yeah. inkwell. Defense, you did have a LinkedIn account, correct? I uh, not been using that. Right, you, you've been <laughs> hating on that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at one point, I had a in in 2013. I had Twitter, uh, and then and then I I got off that fairly quickly. Uh, but the Twitter was really my only social media besides LinkedIn. And I don't really use that either anymore. Cool. Well, Jose Fierro, thank you for uh, dropping in and joining us. We appreciate it. Um, any, uh, any final words, takeaways for the uh, listening audience? Watch these guys watch walk to talk America. You guys are doing great things. And again, I, I I'm so excited to see a lot of the projects that you guys are intimately involved in how they progress so really 
congrats and and i know it's hard to keep at this but you guys have some momentum uh don't quit thanks man appreciate it well michael uh, it's two in one day i appreciate your time and um uh, thanks for leading this thing up that we're all part of on behalf of yeah sorry go ahead i didn't catch that what'd you say i said likewise but oh, thanks uh there i thought we were gonna have a non-clunky ending but oh we have to have a <laughs> I should drop something just to make it more clunky. Bye-bye. <laughs> all right. Uh, we wish you all great mental health, uh, great friendships, and we look forward to having you download our content in the future. Please share it around. Thank you to Arms Corps for sponsoring this yet again. And uh, we'll see you next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.